Welcome back. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com, and this is Insight is Capital. My very special guest this episode is Ilan Collette, Portfolio Manager at Fidelity Investments. Ilan is a prominent figure in the investment industry, renowned for his role as an institutional portfolio manager in the asset allocation team at Fidelity Investments, where he works closely with David Wolf and David Telk. His extensive background in financial analysis and investment strategy has equipped him with a deep understanding of market dynamics. Ilan adeptly interprets economic trends and is well known for crafting effective investment strategies, distinguishing him in his field. In addition to his portfolio management role, Ilan is also known for his contributions to the financial zeitgeist. He provides valuable insights on market trends and economic forecasts, demonstrating an ability to clearly articulate complex financial concepts. He is a valuable resource to both the institutions he serves and the broader investment community. His blend of academic knowledge and practical experience in finance cements his reputation as a respected figure in portfolio management. This is the Insight is Capital podcast. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Ilan, welcome. It is an honor to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Pierre. I'm, uh, I'm excited to have this conversation. Likewise, likewise. Uh, Ilan, for those of us who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your career, how you got started in the industry, and what you're working on these days. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, um, let me rewind a little bit to um, you know, maybe graduate school. I went to graduate school for, uh, for economics at Simon Fraser University out in BC. And then immediately after graduate school, I went to the Bank of Canada. Um, and oh, I went to the Bank wow. of Canada, I guess, in 2002, over 20 years ago, uh, where really that provided the basis and foundation for, I think, everything else that followed. Um, and so the Bank of Canada was a wonderful place to work. It's the finishing school for for economics uh, uh, students, I think. Um, and I worked on uh, the, the U.S. economy as well as commodity prices. I worked under David Dodge and Governor uh, Mark Carney. Amazing. And after after my time at the Bank of Canada, which was around over eight years, I moved to the other end of Spark Street in Ottawa, and I joined Bloomberg News. Um, uh, and this was an interesting role. This was this was a role where I had an exceptionally long leash. Um, my job was to be an expert in terms of data, but also think about data and the story and uncover stories and ideas um, with my colleagues in in Ottawa, in Washington, and in New York. Um, really, a the the perfect intersection of sort of nerd and creative. Um, <laughs> and then, and then in 2014, um, my former colleague David Wolf, who I worked and knew from my time at the Bank of Canada, gave me a call and mentioned that there was a a really interesting opportunity on the asset allocation research team in Boston. Uh, and three months later, I was I was living in Boston, um, and shortly after, my my family followed. Um, and I lived in Boston 2014 to the middle of 21. Um, and I, I ended my time on the asset allocation research team as the head of inflation and um, commodities research. Uh, it was a pretty good time to be to be covering inflation. You know, I joke sometimes, Pierre, that the hardest thing about that role was making a number that hadn't moved in 25 years interesting every month. Um, <laughs> and, and, and then that number moved from two to nine or two to eight. Um, 
And then in the middle of 21, um, we moved back to Canada. I moved to Toronto and I joined the, um, the Canadian asset allocation team managing the multi-asset class funds for Canadian investors. And that's where I am now and have been for uh, almost three years. Amazing. I mean, what a, what a, what an interesting and, and varied career and, and Boston, what a great city to live in for, for as long as you did. That's, uh, that's, that's quite an addition to your, your, your experience as well, I'm sure. Yeah, it was a wonderful experience. I mean, um, you know, we, we still work very, very closely with the research teams that support us um, out of Boston. Again, I was on that asset allocation research team. Um, and, you know, the unique thing with that team is, well, first, I don't think a lot of, um, a lot of firms have that type of ass- dedicated asset allocation research. Um, and, and, you know, I was assessed when I was a researcher on whether or not the decisions and the research that I was producing was additive to the portfolios and the portfolio managers that I was supporting. Right. So there's, there's a very clear, there was no interference basically between the research brain and the portfolio management brain, which, which is an outright edge. Um, you know, I'm a, I joke that I'm a recovering research nerd. Um, (laughs) I don't think there's any substitute for great research. Uh, and it's, and it's a major part of our process. So Elon, um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of our uh, conversation, I'm just curious to know, you know, with the times that we're in, it's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of movement and gyration in the market. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've got a flattening yield curve sitting in the U S at least, uh, around five. And I think in Canada around three and a half to four, um, what are, what are you optimistic about these days after the year uh, that we've had for the bond market uh, where, you know, we've got rising short-term rates and, and also rising long-term rates, um, mm-hmm. which have been sort of a double whammy or, I mean, uh, the, the short, rising short-term rates have provided a, a measure of relief for investors looking for, you know, not only a safe harbor, but a place where you can get some yield, but on the long side, on the long duration end, um, it's been a nightmare. I mean, and, and the funny thing is that if you look at the flows into long-term treasuries, they've been, you know, insatiable for mm-hmm. this year. So, so um, anyway, what, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a few different ways we can take that question. I mean, um, sometimes. And, and, and sorry, that- I, I, I've, you know, sorry to interrupt you, Elana, the equity no, market, no. Uh, you know, we've had the magnificent seven, enormous eight equity market. Uh, there's a lot of dispersion in the equity market now as well. We've got really like uh, a sort of this grand bifurcation uh, in the market that's left people feeling a little bit, you know, nervous and un- uncertain about where where things go next and, you know, what happens mm-hmm. next to the economy. So sorry, let me just to preface um, our conversation a little bit, but go ahead. Yeah, so I think, I think there's a few different ways into this, into this discussion. Um, and maybe I'll rewind slightly and just explain sort of what we do and how we do it. And then that will, that will explain the different ways we have of winning and where we, where we would be optimistic. So, so our job, myself, David and David, our job is to reach across fidelity, both in Canada, in the US and internationally and pick managers, right? No managers are forced upon us, pick underlying fund managers that we believe are, you know, the best players for our team. Um, and then assemble them in such a way to create very balanced exposures across these funds of funds of funds that we're managing. Um, and all of those underlying managers are 
incentivized to beat their own benchmark, right? So if they win against their benchmark, we win by holding them. Right. Um, and and they're you know they they're incentivized to find to turn over more rocks to find those winners, even if uh, even in a very diff- difficult cyclical environment, right? So even for example, in with our emerging markets manager, uh, you know if the cyclical isn't looking great in emerging markets. He still has a very strong research team and a, pro- and a research process and an investment process where he will be able to beat his underlying benchmark. And again, if we own him, we win as well. The right. second step to what we do, um, and I promise I'll actually answer your real question in a second. But <laughs> the second thing that we try to do is we use our four pillar research process to lean in or out of asset classes currencies, geographies, styles. Um, and that's, and, and that's again, that's us thinking about the relative outperformance or underperformance of say Canada versus the U S or commodity produce producers versus, um, overseas equities. Uh, and again, that those are our two ways to win. Right. And over time, I mean, those two things will not necessarily win together every day or month, or even perhaps every year, but over time, Combining those two pillars has proven to be very, very effective in generating excess return above our benchmark, um, at, or for example, a 60-40. Now, Pierre, to answer your question, you know, what are we optimistic about? Uh, not Canada, so we should talk about that. Um, sure. But, uh, I, you know, I think there's a diversity of views on our research team and even amongst us, but I'm quite optimistic about the U.S. Um, so let me start there. I think... I think the likelihood of a soft landing has materially increased in the last six to nine months. And I think that's because of a few things. The first is um, the U.S. is just less interest rate sensitive probably than it's ever been um, for a number of reasons. Um, Debt levels, household debt levels are not as extreme as they are in Canada. I mean, Americans had a major systemic financial crisis in 2008. Right, nearly 10 million Americans lost their job. They took the medicine and delevered meaningfully, and some by force, and it was exceptionally painful. Right, and they didn't relever when rates when rates uh, declined, unlike Canada. Um, but you know, the other thing to to think about the two other things I think that are worth um, hitting on is the structure of the mortgage market is ex- is very different in the U.S. So again, I lived in Boston. I just lived south of Boston from 2014 to the middle of 21. I had a 30-year fixed rate mortgage that was 2%. Yeah. I, I wow. only lost that because I moved. I mean, we'll see how that trade works out. But I, I only lost that 2% <laughs> fixed rate mortgage because I moved. And every single neighbor on my street refinanced pre-COVID. And I knew this because, you know, after dinner, I'd walk the dog. And right. over a 9, 12-month period, every neighbor would ask me, is they knew I was an economist, Now is now the right time to refinance my mortgage. And I would pull out my phone and show them the chart and say, like, how much lower do you yeah. want this to be? Right. Um, so a huge portion of American homeowners refinanced pre-COVID. And so they're just staying put. And businesses did the same thing, right? So businesses turned out their debt, which is in English, refinancing the debt to, to take advantage of those exceptionally low rates. And so the corporate and the household sector are just less interest rate sensitive than they've ever been. Now, the the caveat here, the footnote is, it would be very unprecedented to have 525 basis points of tightening by the Fed 
and not have a hard landing. Um, but, but, you know, the statistics and metrics that I look at, it, it really looks like it's the likelihood of a soft landing has meaningfully increased. And then the, the last point to make there is, this is something we were discussing, of course, before the call, is we think uh, that it's not impossible that the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy is higher than, than what we're observing or what we think, what we think it might be. Um, and, and what that means is perhaps because of advancements in artificial intelligence, investments in clean technology, you know, more flexible work arrangements so that you're optimizing your life a little bit better, maybe that has boosted the potential growth rate of the U.S. economy. Uh, if right. that's the case, that's an exceptionally positive outlook for U.S. growth, U.S. earnings, U.S. companies. Um, and it has happened in the past, right? So in the mid to late 90s, uh, with the advent of the internet and the internet really dramatically changing business processes for many firms, the um, the stall speed or the gro potential growth rate of the U.S. economy was higher than what we thought it was. You know, in that period, the recession models that we were using, which honestly, they're pretty similar to the ones we're using today, were flashing red signals about the likelihood, of, the increasing likelihood of a recession. And we never got it because of that boost to potential growth because of a dramatic change to, to really business, uh, business processes and investment. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting uh, view. I think that the subject of the mortgages is one that, that seems to be coming up quite a bit. You know, U.S. Uh, mortgages are also tax deductible, are they not? <laughs> yes, yes, right? they are. Yeah, and I, I mean, uh, well, that, I didn't know this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, did, I didn't know this one. We first moved to the U.S. Yeah. I moved to the, again, I moved from Ottawa down to Boston in 2014. I didn't, I didn't realize they were, they were taxed. The, the interest on, on your mortgage is tax deductible. And my gosh, that was a pretty nice surprise to get in. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I've always made. Those, yeah, I, I mean, over 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 time, when I've been back and forth to the states, I've always maintained that that you know American consumers have far more disposable income than Canadian and than Canadians, and th and that's actually I think one of the reasons is that is that each and every year, you're you're you know you're getting a substantial uh, tax reduction just from owning a home. And yeah, it is. I mean, it's a it's a bit strange because. Um, it, you know, it's a substantial perk. There's no question there. It incentivizes home ownership. It also incentivizes not paying off your your principal mortgage in full, right? Because, right. Um, you know, so there's a there are, there are some odd incentives there. It's definitely a perk and an incentive for homeowners. Homeowners tend to be at the higher end of the income spectrum, right? So it has been viewed as sort of punishing. It's punishing for renters and a perk for homeowners. Um, and so there's quite a bit of research around that, but, um, but no, I think Pierre, to your point, there is, there are very few things as powerful as the U S consumer, right? It is an exceptionally yeah. powerful force. Um, and you know, it, 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 it can basically fuel a, the global business cycle, the U S consumer alone. Um, you know, just, I, I don't have the stats handy, but just the U S consumer, I think is something like the third or fourth largest economy in the world, just the consumer part. Right. Yeah. So um, it's it's a very, very powerful force. Um, and, you know, if I look at the state of consumers right now, I mean, you really have to squint to see any sort of cracks. Um, again, as long as uh, 
And this is, in fact, even the case in, in Canada, perhaps less so. I think to your other point, I think the fact that, that you know, most uh, U.S. companies refunded their credit during, during the most, you know, during the time when the sun was shining at, at you know, 0% policy rates uh, is also something that might be, you know, uh, underestimated as well. I mean, I can see, you know, it, it, you, you can see when you, when you look at the, you know, the modeling where, you know, the, the lags that people talk about, you know, that, that economists talk about the, the, you know, the long and variable lags are much longer for the U S than for Canada. And you mentioned that, that you're more optimistic for the U S than you are for Canada, but that certainly is a factor, uh, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. That, that difference in interest rate sensitivity, I think, in, in our view, is the reason why we're underweight Canadian equities and overweight U.S. equities. Now, you know, we're very neutral beta in our 60-40, for example. We're, we're, we're basically sitting on top of 60 and 40, but there are opportunities uh, and areas of defensiveness within the portfolios where we're underweight and overweight. And so, to your point, Pierre, that that set that in, that interest rate sensitivity is critical to that thesis. I mean, the U.S. is exceptionally resilient as well. I mean, the U.S. has a much more flexible labor market than than Canada, and that right. that means that in periods of stress, you know, that line down in terms of job loss is a straight line down. Um, and and I mean that again that that contributes to front loading the adjustment. This is something you saw in two thousand eight. Uh, you know, when the, when the job loss came, it came exceptionally rapidly. Um, and also U.S. is, uh, labor is more um, mobile in the U.S., right? So it's not uncommon, for example, for my brother-in-law who worked in New Jersey to pick up his family and take a job in Indiana. Um, that type of labor mobility is much more common, I think, in the, in the U.S., and that contributes to the resilience of the of the labor market and the economy. It's less so in Canada. In Canada, you know, I think the joke is most people kind of bought, buy a home and, you know, within five kilometers of where their parents right. lived or something like that. Um, but to the, back to the interest rate sensitivity discussion, I mean, this is a, this is a, what's significant concern to us in Canada. Um, you know, happy to dig into that, but for that, we need to rewind. We do need to rewind to 2008 because Canada had a very different experience to, through 2008. And then when rates declined, you know, we went, gangbusters we went way over our skis on on household debt and that's yeah that's that's problematic with 475 basis points of tightening by the bank of canada yeah so my next question uh is what are you pessimistic about <laughs> i know you've got yeah, you know, so, we we sort of covered some yeah. of that i mean it sort of goes hand in hand with what are you optimistic about but what what are some of the um highlights or, or, you know, key points of, of uh, pessimism in your, in your models? Sure. Yeah. I mean, perhaps these are lowlights instead of highlights, uh, but, right. um, uh, again, we have continued concern around, around the macroeconomic st stability and sustainability in Canada. Um, and for that, I think the best thing to do is again, to rewind to 08, right? So if we rewind to 2008 systemic financial crisis, one in a hundred year type of event in the U S major deleveraging moments, millions of job losses, uh, of, of jobs lost. And in Canada, I mean, Canada sort of comes through 
the financial crisis first or second best in the G7, sort of depending on how right. you measure it. Um, I was at the bank at the time and, and under Governor Carney, you know, we had we had five well-capitalized banks. We didn't have the dodgy mortgages that, that the U.S. had. Um, we had China growing at, I don't know, 10 or 15% and buying all the commodities we could export, right? So it was, there were a few contributing factors to that resilience, but then rates moved much lower globally, including in Canada. And then post 08, Canadians did what low rates incentivize you to do, right? So they bought the houses, cottages, condos, sea-dews, ski-dews. Right. In Alberta, they'll mention quads. I don't know what those were. They're like four wheelie things. Um, yeah. So you yeah. bought, you know, you buy these. Like a ATV. ATVs, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So, um, so you buy these large durable assets that you can finance at a low rate for a long time. Um, and, and servicing that debt is fine and manageable unless you get the largest inflation shock in 40 years resulting in 475 basis points of tightening by the central bank. Uh, and that's exactly what we got. And and so our view for a long time has been extremely elevated rates of household debt by really any measure or comparison across countries intersecting that much tighter monetary policy and and higher rates is going to is going to show up in consumer spending, discretionary consumer spending, inventories, business formation, uh, and will eventually lead to uh, a meaningful change in in economic growth. Now, what I mean by that, like how we get from high rates of debt and higher uh, borrowing rates to a recession or a pullback is, you know, Canadians have full recourse mortgages. We don't really have a culture of giving back the keys, right? But, right? But you know in my and view we, and we don't and we is, don't you know we 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 don't get the benefit of tax deductions for our no, interest no yeah. no exactly right which would be yeah. an incredible but no we, we don't have that um yeah so what would normally happen i i think the way this plays out is again the housing market in canada was on fire 2019 20 and 21 if most of us have five year terms on these and you add five years to 19 20 and 21 you have 23 24 and 25 um, right. And, so the and refunding again, of in mortgages RV, is coming up. Yeah, it, exactly. Right. So there's yeah. this, um, there's this stress, really stressful stress test coming up for a lot of people renewing. It's already happened to the people who, the folks with variable rate mortgages, but, right. but for the, the standard mortgage, this, this, um, hurdle is coming up very soon. And again, I think the way it plays out is because most Canadians will do whatever they possibly can to make that principal mortgage payment they'll cut discretionary consumer spending, right? So consumer spending is two thirds of Canadian GDP. Discretionary isn't all of that, but you get, again, if you're, if you're, if the amount you need to pay on your mortgage or the debt service payment every month increases, you know, you swap out of the steakhouse into ordering pizza, right? Or the kids go to one week fewer summer camps. Now that sounds terrible, but you know, you yeah. make these, you make these discretionary consumer spending changes that results in a pullback in consumer spending. That means those summer camps and those steakhouses perhaps need fewer workers or the workers that are there don't ask for such strong um, wage increases. That pulls, that leads to a pullback in demand and ultimately a pullback in wage growth and a pullback in core inflation, which we can get to, but that's the ultimate goal. So, you know, my colleague David Wolf has said um, a recession in Canada 
you know, and this and this type of these linkages that I just just described, they're a feature, not a bug, right? This is exactly some pain is it is an intended consequence of elevated rates to cool demand. So again, we have you know the Canadian economy has been remarkably resilient, um, and we think there are a few factors that have that have helped with that resilience, which we can talk about. But but again, growth growth since the start of this year has been a flat line, right? So the Canadian economy has not grown since the start of this year. It's not impossible that next year, like the statistical agencies tell us, oh, by the way, last last year you were in a mild recession, right? So again, it's right. a lot of the times when you're dating recessions, you're forecasting the past. And my experience is it's a lot easier, easier to forecast the past than the future. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Elon, what about the uh, third of the Canadian economy that's not consumer driven? So, um, well, there are different elements there. I mean, the most yeah. rate sensitive part of any economy is the housing market, right? And so the housing market is, and there's a great paper written in 2007 by Ed Lemer, Professor Ed Lemer called Housing is the Business Cycle. Um, it's a little bit nerdy. The back half of it is a little bit nerdy, but the first chunk is is really digestible and readable. So that's, um, I would really, I would, I would suggest people check it out. Um, and the reason he puts forth this, puts forth this thesis that, housing is the business cycle is it is the most rate sensitive part of an economy, right? So when rates were increasing uh, tremendously in that 18 month period, when, when rates increased 475 basis points in Canada, 525 basis points in the U S housing came to a standstill. Um, you know, housing activity, uh, just, just came to a crawl. Um, and while there's been some, sort of uh, signs of life in housing now, um, again, it's a, it's a much higher hurdle for most, for most borrowers. Similarly, in a recession, when rates decline, the first thing that sort of comes back to life is, is housing. Um, the other parts of, right. of that add up that aren't consumer spending are things like, are important, me- are important uh, line items to look at as well. Things like business investment, right? So business investment is what we, you know, what a lot of us think of as CapEx, um, it can be, it can be building in plants and, 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 you know, structures, it can be software and it can be intellectual property. Um, so it's bucketed that way. Uh, and then there's government spending and there's also trade, right? So there's exports and imports. Um, these are, this is the classic GDP add up, but honestly, um, two, with two thirds of the Canadian economy being, being consumer spending slightly higher in the U S that is the that is the most important driver of, of I would say a recession or a recovery, right? As soon as you get right. a rece- as soon as you get a consumer pullback, um, mean, a meaningful consumer pullback, that that basically is a decline in growth, very hard to avoid, because that other those other chunks just can't compensate enough to to offset the pullback, and they're very linked as well. So, Ilan, how are you um, how are you connecting your economic outlook? For Canada, where you know we possibly find ourselves in a in a, a a deeper recession than than let's say or deeper slowdown than the U.S. over the next couple of years, how does that play? How does that translate into what you're doing on the investment side? So, um, specifically so for Canada, ways, yeah. So yeah. there's a few ways a few ways for us to think about that. We really firmly believe in the division of labor when it comes to the management of our funds. 
So while I just set up the case for an underperformance of Canada versus the US, and that explains us being slightly- Well, that's the macro, you know, right? I mean, we're talking, that's it, the it, macroeconomic it, exactly, performance. Right. So yeah. that's, exactly. So that's, uh, and, and that would flow into, we think, uh, equities as well, right? So, right. and that explains why we would be perhaps underweight Canadian equities and overweight US equities. I mean, we still have those underlying managers that we're using in our fund of funds that we we definitely want them to beat their benchmarks, even if we're slightly underweight Canada. I mean, and again, so on our in our 60-40, roughly 21% of that of the equity side is Canada, it's Canadian equities. We just shave, you know, four or five percent off of that because of that relative outperformance we expect in other regions. But there's still a sizable chunk of that 60-40 that that is made up of Canadian equities and associated uh, Canadian equity managers that we're using in our funds. So again, those managers are still incentivized to use their investment process and their research to, to find the companies, even if Canada is in a stressful macroeconomic environment, right. you know, choose this bank instead of this one, or choose this energy company instead of this one um, to relatively outperform, right? Um, and, and, and do well against their, their individual benchmark. Again, what I would say is the reason I mentioned that division of labor, Pierre, is we talk to our underlying managers very often. We read the research that, that is informing their investment process, but we would never dictate or even try to dictate to them, uh, we're worried about Canada, you should avoid this and buy this. I mean, there's a full division of labor right. here. Um, they they'll fall. We want them to do what they're best at, and we want, and then we can own their funds. Right, then, right. So I mean, in your in your asset allocation process, you're allocating, or or you're you're either allocating or or not, or you're cutting back your allocations or increasing your allocations. Uh, you're not you know you're not um, dictating to any any particular uh, portfolio manager's mandate of, about what to do. Um, but obviously, you're getting a lot of feedback and and conversation between you and them, that's informing your decisions. Uh, exactly. They tell you what they tell you what they think, you tell them what you think, the, you tell them what you're doing, whether you're gonna increase your allocations or cut your allocations, um, depending on you know, your model, your outlook. One of the best things I've heard lately is that you know, this is a market where you have to, you're not making binary decisions. I mean, in, in your work, you're not making binary decisions in the asset allocation research team. You're, you're deciding uh, how much to wait, what the probabilities are uh, of, of, of different outcomes and, and deciding who and where and what gets what, you know, what allocation across the board. But you're not cutting anything out completely um, no. because, you know, frankly, I mean, the markets, markets are unpredictable. Things can change. And um, it's not a matter of, of uh, an on-off switch or, or uh, um, you know, invest, don't invest. It's, 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 it's always a matter of probability and, and calibration, right? I mean, deciding how much and, and where to um, invest. So, so your, your asset allocation outlook, your strategic mix, tactical mix is, is cutting back on Canada, not cutting out Canada. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and here, like, th that's a very, very important point that we can't stress enough. Right. So, um, you know, our industry, I think sometimes they, we have this terrible term, back up the truck, right. When asset <laughs> classes are cheap, back up the truck. I mean, right. 
anyone who works with a good a good quant team that examines risk metrics will never ever say that line and it's because i mean the way that we're managing these funds is a really strong research input four pillars which are macro sentiment valuation and bottom up uh and then the size of the overweights and the underweights will be reflective of the conviction that we have in those views right and so not every view we have is a table pounding high conviction view and that will be reflected in how much we're leaning in or out so again we you know when i started on the team um a mentor mentioned to me that what we're trying to do is add one basis point to the mountain, one basis point at a time, right? So right. this is not a uh, back of the truck type of environment. Um, and, and it's important. I mean, those underlying conversations that we're having with our, our fund managers, that bottom up pillar, I mean, to me, that has become an absolutely critical part of our process. So, you know, for example, we had a very strong view on, on the macro in Canada. Elevated rates, 475 basis points of tightening on top of incredibly indebted households is going to be really stressful. But, you know, one of the one of the reasons that underweight on Canadian equities was not as large um, was because of some of the conversations we had with the underlying managers and their researchers speaking about the resilience in Canada. Right. So, you know, the accumulated savings of households was was a contributing factor. You know, creative mortgage math from some of, uh, you know, some of the mortgage lenders was a factor. One and a half million people moving to Canada. Sorry, one and a population growth of one and a half million. Uh, 500,000 people moving to Canada last year. That's a major right. factor. So there were, the, there were these factors that caused us to not lean in as negatively as we could have. Because while the macro looked very troubling, you know, again, the bottom up, pillar that that's looking at the earnings reports and speaking to uh, the underlying researchers and managers was not as troubling as the macro would have suggested. Right. And so yeah. that, and, and that's a very, very important part of our process. And it's sort of, it's peppered throughout the, the portfolio um, in overweights and underweights. Right. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're, you're picking managers. You're also picking between styles and factors. Uh, you know, growth versus value. You're 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 picking um, or momentum. Uh, you know, where, depending on where you know where where alpha is coming from. But but you have a base. You have a you have a base model that you work with. And then, as you as you said, you're 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 looking to add incremental amounts of return uh, through through your weighting process to that base that's, model. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And then I think like you know, in terms of the. We never want to be, we never, we really don't want to ever have a bias, right? So we don't want a style bias. We don't want to be um, only growth or only value. We never want to have a country bias, right? So in my head, the, the plot of diversification is not just geographies and asset classes. It's geographies, asset classes, styles, manager styles, um, you know, so, and the, the reason for that is if we combine, in our view, and according to our research, if we combine managers of different styles, right? So we combine that U.S. large cap growth manager with the overseas European value uh, bank manager. If we combine them in such a way, the end ride for the end investor is smoother, right? And so right. we're not we're not getting whipsawed by the style that might be in favor that month, week, or year. And similarly, 
for the geography part, I mean, I think a lot of, it's very common, I think, for Canadian investors to have home bias. It's very natural, right? So you want to invest in the company that you drive by on the highway on your way to work. I mean, back when we used to come into work, but, uh, or, you know, you want to invest in that, that company that you know someone who works for, but too much style bias, too much geography bias, right? Too much home country bias right. would have left a tremendous amount of ta- return on the table Right. Had you only been a Canadian, in, invested in like Canadian companies, for example, you would have left, left an enormous amount of return on the table over the last 15 years. Right. So we don't really, we never want to have these biases. That's a, that's, so, a, that's a big problem in Canada. I mean, that's a big problem in almost every country, country is country bias, um, you know, in a portfolio. And, you know, we, we, like you said, we, you know, we like when we're driving, we like to see the billboards and the signs of the sure. companies we like and, and love, right? I mean, uh, that just gives us a, an element of comfort <laughs> right. uh, as, as investors. But there's obviously, there's a whole world of investment out there. And one of the biggest problems that we have is, is this home country bias issue that, that arises in practically every portfolio uh, you know, across the country is, is you know, having, having you know, weighing between familiarity and opportunity um, is a rather exactly. big concern. But I think, I think for advisors, I, where I see, you know, the benefit of of what you do is that advisors have this constant problem of of line item risk in their portfolios. So when they want to diversify properly, when they want to take their their clients' assets and divide and and you know not only discuss with them diversification but actually act on it, um, that leads to a whole range of problems for for the advisor and for the client as well, which is this lack of willingness in many cases to commit to a diversifier or commit to a diversification. That's probably, you know, we, we talk about it every day. Oh yeah. You know, the, the best insurance for a portfolio is diversification. It's free lunch, you know, whatever, all the, you know, different adages and idioms people have for diversification. You know, the reason that all those adages and idioms exist is because diversification is the hardest thing to accomplish you know, we, we can all do it for ourselves i can personally diversify my portfolio but if i'm responsible for you know three four hundred clients and and i want to diversify them i have to have that conversation with practically every single one of them and yeah. and then help them to understand you know why do we have this energy stock or why do we have these commodities or why do we have these alternatives or why do we have look they're not doing anything for the portfolio look my you know my my magnificent seven. That's what's driving everything right now, right? Or that's what's driven everything this year. Why can't we buy more of what's winning? And the, the uh, you know that's that's that recency bias where where you know people are looking at their portfolios and they're saying, well, why do we own all this other stuff? And you have to constantly remind, you know, constantly remind. And 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 that's where what you do takes the heat off the advisory. Right question right which is which is you know how do i overcome the line item the, the, the line item problem that i have every quarter or every year when i do reviews um and if it's wrapped up in the one line item where you're doing it all and it's not it's not immediately visible in their statement then that's that's actually a very big problem solver well exactly for, i mean so so yeah you know pierre sometimes i've described the portfolios we're managing these these multi-asset class funds as really elegant solutions to really complex problems, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, in, in the span of an hour, I can have a conversation about um, this cyclical risk in, in China, 
AI opportunities in the US, household debt concerns in Canada, how are we protecting the funds against inflation? How, why are we underweight the Canadian dollar, right? So a huge range of, of topics. Uh, all of those are being fed by researchers that we're working with, and that's feeding uh, the positions or that's informing the positions that we have in our portfolio. So again, it's a very, very a complex optimization problem that is, right. that is sort of made simple or simpler for the end investor in these, in these fund of funds by, by, again, diversifying across managers, across styles, across, across geographies, and then also our ability to, to take out of benchmark um, overweights or underweights as well, right? So, you know, that's particularly important in the case of, say, inflation protection, right? Um, yeah. which, which, you know, I'm, again, I'm an, a longstanding inflation nerd, and, and that was a major high conviction view that we had for some time. And because of that, we built, it in, we built that insurance into the portfolio and in fact, we even launched a dedicated multi-asset class uh, investment uh, um, inflation protection fund in September right. of 21 as well. So Ilan, speaking of inflation and inflation protection, why don't we maybe um, you know, talk about your view on inflation and its impact, its potential impact on portfolios, and then how do you, how do you build in inflation protection into your asset allocation. Sure. That's, um, that's three, three questions. <laughs> no, but those are the three most yeah, important yeah, ones. I mean, I think, right. uh, I think, I think there's, yeah, the three questions are where's inflation right now? What's happening with inflation? Right. Uh, the second one is, um, really what why damage should we can it care? Do? Yeah. Yeah. Like what's, what's the damage? Why should we care? Yeah. And then the third one is what are we doing to, or what have we done and what are we continuing to do to, to protect investors against the damaging effects of inflation. So, right. You know, we, we sort of know where we are now. I think inflation went to eight and 9% in Canada and the U S right. These were higher inflation rates than like Mexico and India. I, I never thought I would say those lines in my life. Uh, inflation was driven higher by meaningful supply chain, uh, disruption, sort of a wartime supply chain shock and all of us being locked into our houses. And only we were only able to consume and buy the Pelotons and the air fryers, and we couldn't buy anything else. <laughs> and I bought both of those things, <laughs> and I'm not using either now. Uh, so, yeah. um, you know, so <laughs> so yeah, interesting. Uh, so you, yeah. you know, right? So, yeah. so we we same same here, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So, so lots of us competed for fewer goods, and that drove the yeah. price higher. That shock has rolled off, right? So goods prices are now inflating, are growing at the rate that they were pre-COVID. Now, to be really clear here, Pierre, nothing is going for sale. There was a price level shock, right? So what I mean by those things are growing, the inflation rate for goods is now roughly pre, is the roughly now the pre-COVID inflation rate, but there's been a meaningful step higher in inflation over the last three years. Actually, I pulled a couple stats. So over the last three years, food prices in Canada are up 23%. Eating out at restaurants is up 18%. Shelter is up 19, vehicle prices are up 18%, and wages are up 13%, right? So right. think 20 versus 13, and that's why everything feels a lot more expensive, because it is when compared to wages. What we're left with now on inflation is the stubbornly sticky part, which is services. So services are three quarters of the underlying inflation pie. Services are determined by the price you pay the person doing the service, right? So when, we, when you go to the mechanic, it's not 
it's not the park that's expensive, it's the person's time, right? When you go to the steakhouse, the reason that steak is expensive is certainly inputs, but also the person's time um, at right. that restaurant. And people are much more expensive now because the labor market is exceptionally tight. So we've had a view for a long time that eight to four would be pretty easy and mechanical. Four back down to two is going to be sort of slow and crunchy and require some pain. Um, now, why should we care about inflation? Well, I think I used to say the 70s provides a great example, uh, but 2022 was an excellent example as well, right? So again, I'm sorry to rewind to these awful years for us, but um, the problem with inflation is it erodes the negative correlation between stocks and bonds that we all know and love, right? So, right. Um, you know, so that, that uh, founding principle where stocks give you, in, give you the upside in periods of growth and bonds give you the protection in periods of stress, that inverse relationship comes under pressure with elevated inflation and elevated inflation volatility. The 1970s is a great example of this, right? So if you were sitting in a 60-40 in, in the 70s, I mean, <laughs> yeah. unless you owned, right, I mean, unless you owned the land that produced the commodities because commodities were fairly uninvestable, it was a lost decade. And 2022, I mean, again, from an absolute return perspective, you have to own cash, you have to own the US dollar, and you have to own commodities, right? If you didn't, I mean, it, right. bonds and stocks were sort of down and downer. Um, and so how did we, in relative terms, to, to preserve basis points, what we did last year and what we sort of continue to do is we have, uh, we have a sizable underweight to the Canadian dollar, most of which is an overweight to the US dollar. We have higher in our 60-40, for example, well, really across the funds, we have a relatively higher, a slightly higher allocation to cash than we normally would. Now, for people on the call, I mean, investors hire us or buy our funds to be fully invested, not really to hold cash. And last year we right. had eight or nine percent. Like last year, eight or nine percent of our fund was was being of our 60-40 was held in cash. And then the third point is we own commodity producers, right? Oil and gold. And, and on the inflation protection side, on the bond side, we own tips, right? So we really have built in elements of, um, of inflation protection. Um, most, notably, most notably, I think the, the commodity position, which, which was elevated, right. quite elevated last year and is, has been reduced this year because of the improvement in the inflation data. But we just don't think, I mean, to, to put a bow on it, we don't believe the war has been won yet on inflation. Um, again, this ties into rates, but we have not seen, especially in Canada, we have not seen that labor market adjustment that we think we need to see in order for wage inflation to slow, service inflation to slow, and core inflation to slow. And so any, anytime you hear a, a central banker like Governor Macklem or, or Chair Powell talk about adjustments in the labor market, immediately right. you should think wages and service inflation, because that's the linkage that they're thinking of as well. Well, and look at what's happening. You know, we just like, look at what's happened. Like, for example, one of the high profile strikes has been the Hollywood strike. And, you know, it only just got resolved and it resulted in some substantial raises for, you know, the writers and actors and royalties are, are substantially, you know, got negotiated substantially uh, higher, uh, more favorable for, for the, basically all the, key workers in the, in the industry. Exactly. Right? I mean, it's the same, so, uh, you know, the, like the UAW uh, negotiation. And the auto, there was, the, yeah, there was right. the big auto settlement. I mean, exactly. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, those yeah. are those are very big. Those are very big labor settlements that have yet to they are. Trend, you know, <laughs> maybe, have maybe, yet to. That's right. Maybe after this call, I'll yeah. ask my boss for a twenty five percent raise and see how see how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but again, you know, Pierre, when I hear UAW asking for forty percent over four years and a reduction in the work week from forty hours to thirty two hours. Right. Immediately in my head, that's a labor market anecdote. That means the demand for F-150s coming out of that plant is way too strong and rates need to remain elevated for longer than we believe, right? So the final link is this idea of 100 basis points, 150 basis points of cuts between now and the end of next year. Um, it's very hard to forecast rate decisions, but we have a view that rates will remain elevated and painful until we see that uh, adjustment in the labor market and in consumer demand. And really, we just have not seen that yet um, at all. I think, you know, one of the interesting things that's sort of happening is that, is that, you know, the U.S. government is facing refunding challenges. And, you know, um, one of the points that was made last week, I think it was Ken Griffin at Citadel, pointed out that, you know, when they had the opportunity to refund uh, there's, you know, some of their 30 year debt, you know, the long-term bonds, they didn't. <laughs> and I mean, it, it probably was, you know, a, a factor of cross timing, you know, being at odds with QE and QT and a bunch of other things at that, you know, in that moment where they were being criticized also for taking too long to react to inflation. Um, but now they have no choice, but to refund 30 year bonds at, you know, 4.6, 4.7, mm -hmm. you know, even as high as 5% recently. But but when you look at 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 that and you you see the challenges that are coming that are up and coming as well as you know the fiscal challenges, um, then then you know credit refunding as well for companies that have debt that's rolling over, uh, it's all going to be harder. And then so some of those factors, I don't know if I would get into deglobalization so much, but you know with China not buying U.S. Treasuries lately, um, that's also put a lot of pressure on 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 the U.S. on the U.S. Treasury on the U.S. government, um, do you see what's the probability? I mean, I think what you just said was that it will take longer for the Fed to start cutting. Pausing, yes, maybe, but cutting is a whole other is, is a whole other reaction function, right? I mean, yeah. something something has to go terribly wrong in the U.S. economy or start to look like it's going to go terribly wrong. We've already had sort of a flash earlier this year with the banking. The regional banks, um, you know, going under, and and that's another question: is how long how how long can the Fed or how much mm -hmm. willingness is there at the Treasury? Probably it's indefinite, but but the the Treasury and the Fed have to continue to support the regional banking sector as well as well as the money center banks that are holding all this held to maturity, all these held to maturity assets that are that are under pressure as well in terms of, of their, uh, you know, their, their books. Right. So if you, if you look at, at, at all those factors, those are where maybe there's a longer, a higher for longer or high for longer, uh, consideration that I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're on that, <laughs> you know, well, yeah, you're, and you're, I think, you're I mean, preparing for the possibility that, 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 that is what the outcome could be over the next couple of years. Yeah. So I think even while you're bullish. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and again, right now, like in terms of being bullish or bearish, we're sort of fairly neutral in terms of beta. So it's, mm -hmm. it's balanced across the funds, but 
but certainly some areas of opportunity and defensiveness. But but Pierre, to that to that specific question, you know, more rate hikes, pauses, or rate cuts. Um, I think there's a couple ways to get at that. So the first thing we should remember is the bank and, and the economy is resi- and, and sorry, Elon, the economy is resilient. That's the exactly. other problem. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so so and what d- demand? Demand is too strong, right? Let's like to put it in one sentence: demand is excessively yeah. strong uh, for the available supply that the economy can produce, and that has resulted in a sizable amount of inflation and a price level that has jumped again, a, a really big increase in 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 the price level, with the hope that inflation will slow. Again, nothing's going for sale, but in terms of the rate discussion, I mean, this this question comes up a lot. Rate hikes, more rate hikes, rate cuts versus a pause. And I think there's two important things to mention there. The first is, uh, you know, and I worked at the bank for eight years and David Tulk and David Wolf, my colleagues worked in that institution as well. They are laser focused on achieving their inflation mandate. Um, You know, before COVID, we had this saying, don't fight the Fed. We should think about (laughs) the same thing right now, right? Um, Right. They are laser focused on achieving one to three percent inflation in Canada, two percent in the U.S. Um, because the already lost credibility needs to be regained, and in their view, the damaging effects of slightly higher inflation for a little bit longer are more painful than achieving the two percent. Now there will be a trade-off there, but this idea that three is the new two, I would throw all the cold water on. It's I mean two is the new two. Um, and and that's here, their mandate. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, and the 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 framework that I sort of use to explain um, when rates will be cut or ra- where rates are heading from here is this idea of indecision versus decision. And I don't pronounce decision that way all the time, but it's kind of <laughs> for effect. But, um, so so what I, the way I think about it here is so post COVID rates were here and we knew rates needed to be here, right and uh, there was indecision, 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 because we don't want to squash the recovery. We don't want to squash the recovery. Oh, inflation yeah. is too elevated. Let's raise rates by 475 basis points, right? In larger jumps than we're used to, right? So that is that indecision versus decision. Think about the same sort of framework today. Uh, indecision means rates are here and event, you know, let's say five right. and neutral is in the twos. We know eventually we need to be down there, but we're not going to even slightly hint at cutting or normalizing rates until we are absolutely wholly convinced that elevated inflation, call it four, is heading back down to two. And that's not one month of CPI prints. That's not two, right? That's four, five, six, seven months of consecutive monthly prints that appear as though 12 months from then, they'll be at 2%. Now, what what central banks are very good at, and I'm reminded of a conversation um, that I had at a Brookings conference, I think it was in 2018, where uh, the president of, a, of the Cleveland Fed said, you know, in, in modern central banking, it matters more what central banks say than what they do. So we know on Fed Day, on, ban- on BOC Day, you know, we've been basically taken on a leash to what they're going to decide to do. But right. It's the communication in between those meetings that conditions where the expectations go, right? And so if we see four, five, six, seven months 
of consecutive pos- of, of positive news on inflation, then you will see a change to the language. And you've sort of seen this with Powell, with Chair Powell, right? You've seen him say, you know, in, I, I'm paraphrasing here, encouraging signs on inflation come up, but we must right. remain vigilant, right? So they sort of keep the must remain vigilant because that's that insurance policy. And eventually the must remain vigilant gets dropped and, you know, they're more convinced that the path of inflation is heading back down to normal. And then the, the language changes to rates may not be, need to be as restrictive going forward, something along those lines. And then eventually rates uh, get cut. But again, right. uh, indecision is more powerful than decision. and. And in our view, rates are going to remain elevated until that adjustment is is convincingly uh, begun and on its way back down to two. And that will require that may require some pain. And again, that that word pain is not my words, Pierre. That's Chair Powell's, right? So that's right. (laughs) That's a word. That's a word he he has used. I think he used it like eight times in a seven minute speech last August. So this is again, this is the way that that model works. and that's why we we think if you know rates will remain at that elevated and restrictive level. That said, the Bank of Canada is very well aware of how sensitive the Canadian household is to elevated rates of debt. They have no desire to implode the Canadian household, right? Right. They, they don't want to overcool uh, the Canadian the Canadian household, um, and so I think hence why they, hence why they paused they paused sooner. Well, I mean, exactly. And so again, for, you know, they're very, they have a lot of very smart researchers in that, in that building on Wellington. They know they're looking at the same data that you and I are looking at. They know that, that these sensitivities exist. Um, and then the last, the last thing to mention is again, we have a view that rates will remain elevated and probably not push much higher or be cut anytime soon, but how could I be wrong? I think that's important to mention. Um, just, just to be honest, so I, could, I think I could be wrong on on two ways on the way down, um, right? If the Canadian economy gets T-boned at the intersection in terms of the data, so that's a sharp rise in unemployment, a major deterioration in growth, a sharp rise in insolvencies. Central banks have told us they're data dependent, so they will they will cut rates and trade off hitting the inflation goal a little bit later for a little bit more inflation now, while to stem the bleeding in the in the economy. The second way I could be wrong is what we discussed on the U.S. side, right? So if, if potential growth in the U.S. is higher than what we believe, then rates may not need to be as restrictive as they are. Uh, and you get an immaculate decline in inflation. You know, rates don't need to be at f- in the fives if neutral is, is lower than that. Um, but the last thing to mention on how I could be wrong is if inflation gets to, I don't know, low threes or, and, and then moves sideways, and is unresponsive to the cumulative tightening that we've had, it does suggest that rates potentially need to push higher. I mean, that's not my base case, um, but it's not an impossibility either. Is that they're pushing on a string at that, at that spot? And, well, and I mean, that's it. I in mean, reverse. So, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, if you, yeah. if you can imagine a case in the U.S. where the economy is less interest rate sensitive because of that refinancing and terming out of debt and inflation just stalls out, in the threes or the mid threes, um, that means you may need to do more. Um, again, it's very hard. It's very hard for me to forecast that far into the future, but it, it shouldn't be removed off the table. And again, well, yeah. both the fed and the bank of Canada have told us that if they need to do more, they will. 
that was a very that was a very comprehensive uh, response to those three questions. Okay. <laughs> so now that now that you've we've covered that, what what are the what are the bright spots in the global asset allocation? Like what are what are the where what are the areas where you see the most potential given the scenario that we've just talked about, and and how can investors feel uh, assured that not only are you um, you know, doing the obvious, which is, which is seeking return for the, for their portfolios, but, uh, ensuring also that the interest rate sensitivity that we've talked about, uh, and the leading and variable lags that are mm. up and coming, um, the potential for the tightening to actually have a more dire impact on the market, uh, on, on, on credit and lending and, and the, the consumer, um, how are how are you positioned globally and locally uh, in order to sure. overcome those challenges, the uncertainty that that poses? Yeah. So um, again, if I think of our our flagship managed portfolios, the the real the way that we build in resilience is in two ways. We talked about the diversification element, right, across managers and asset classes and currencies, et cetera. Um, but the other way that these are exceptionally resilient is in their tactical abilities, right? And so, you know, put it, put it another way, you, you know, the, your grandfather's 60-40 is no longer the 60-40 that we should be talking about. So, you, you know, the 60-40 that we have, not only is it diversified across managers and styles and currencies, but it's tactical as well. So that 60-40, the global balance uh, uh, fund, can be a 75-25 or a 45-55, depending on how we want to lean in, right? Optimism or lean out defensiveness of various, of various regions or asset classes. And so right now we've talked about the underweight to Canada because of those concerns and the slight overweight to the US. We have, we have small overweights to um, Europe uh, and, and emerging markets as well. Now they're small overweights. Um, Valuations are attractive. Now, again, I, I can see the audience doing a collective eye roll. I mean, uh, <laughs> valuations are not a timing, yeah. are not at all a timing tool, but they're one of the inputs into our four pillar investment process. Um, and, you know, the other, another pillar of our investment process is sentiment, right? And so sentiment for us is a contrarian indicator. When sentiment is exceptionally negative, that's probably the time for us to be leaning in and when it's weight, when it's exuberant, that's probably the time for us to be uh, pumping the brakes. So when I think about emerging markets, you know, cyclically the news in China is is not good, is is quite quite negative. Um, but in in our view, and again, we work with researchers who help us think about this: is it getting materially worse from here? Um, if the answer is the worst is likely behind us, or we're we're in the worst of it now. We have to think about what that um, what that sentiment and what that contrarian sentiment view might might mean. The other the other thing is we manage these portfolios for the medium to long term investor, right? And you know when I sat in Boston, I sat next to a woman on the asset allocation research team, wonderful colleague, um, who is who was the secular analyst for the asset allocation research team. So her only job was thinking about the investable universe at the twenty to fifty year horizon. Really cool job. Um, wow. And when she did, every year when she did this capital market assumption exercise, 
there was no group of no group of countries where the growth outlook and the earnings outlook was more positive than emerging markets, right? So better demographics, they're generally younger, and really that right. potential for productivity leapfrogs. You know, so if you have, you know, no for, no formal banking sector, you don't build brick and mortar and then go to fintech. You kind of do the leapfrog. That could be a very very powerful source of growth when combined with with younger demographics. So we have slight overweights um, to emerging markets. For commodity producers, uh, that's that's an overweight on the equity side as well. That's really motivated in that inflation discussion that we just had. And then on the bond side of the portfolio, we have had underweights to investment grade, both globally and in Canada for some time. They're smaller than they were in the past. A lot of value has returned, but um, we've chosen really to take, to enhance the income side of the portfolio in the credit and the spread sectors, right? So that's leverage loans, that's high yield, that's um, global high yield, that's floating rates. Uh, that's those sectors where we really have been able to enhance enhance the income side. Right. Also on the uh, on the fixed income side, you know, a, a still a slight overweight to tips to inflation protected debt, a, a slight overweight to cash, and then the last thing to talk about on how we're um, how we're building resilience into these portfolios is our view on the Canadian dollar, right? And so again. Uh, I think you asked me for optimism, but this might not quite get there. But I mean, the way we think about using the Canadian dollar in our funds is we use it as a shock absorber, right? So we use it as as a risk mitigation tool. Uh, So for example, in our 60-40, the underweight to the Canadian dollar right now is, you know, in the order of 12 or 13%. There's a meaningful underweight. And and the way that I think about the Canadian dollar is it's a cyclical currency, right? So when equities and credit come under pressure, so think the last five months of last year, right? Canadian dollar went from 82 cents to 72 cents. If we're underweight the Canadian dollar, we're preserving basis points in our, in our performance and, and putting in a shock absorber into our funds. Um, and so uh, that's how we think about the Canadian dollar. It's a very important lever for us to use in terms of managing the overall risk and, and that, um, that, and ride for the end investor. I think the really important question right now with regards to markets is um, what's your view on, what's your overarching view on fixed income right now? I know, Um, I, I think, I think, and I wanted to point out that, you know, you, you, you've, you've stressed that you have a, an overweight on cash, but you know, a couple of years ago, that might have been questionable, a questionable choice. You know, people would have looked, might, might look at that and say, why do you have so much cash? Are you defensive? But today it's actually a, a sound strategic choice because you're getting, you're getting the yield. Yeah. That wasn't there a couple, just a couple of years ago. So suddenly, you know, cash is a great waiting spot while you, you know, uh, it's a great place to get yield, especially if you're, you know, you know, right there at the front end of the yield curve. Um, that's a very nice, nice spot right now, <laughs> right? Absolutely. It's not, yeah. it, it's, it, so it, it's a strategic choice. It's a tactical choice as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this was our approach last year, right? So our approach last year was yeah. to have eight, 9% of the, of the fund in cash, um, because we had a high conviction view on what the front end of the curve would do, right? right. Much higher, much sooner and much higher. 
and less less conviction uh, in in further out the curve, right? And so, again, I mean, a tremendous amount of value has uh, has returned to bonds, and um, for us, really, um, and, and you know, if I evolve the positioning to where we are sitting today, th those underweights to investment grade have been pulled in, but we need to we need to have more certainty, for example, on the resting spot for monetary policy before uh, before we get you know outright constructive. I would say on um, on on that investment grade on that investment grade position in our funds, and that has been the right call. That has been the right move um, so far. But again, not to take it back to research, I think every answer I've given you has used the word research, but. There, <laughs> there is nowhere. I mean, there are a few spots in our in our in our process where research really shines. The researchers and the uh, that we have access to, and the underlying managers that that we speak to on those credit and spread sectors are really best in class, right? And so they have been right. they have been very very helpful in in terms of uh, enhancing that income side of the of the fund. Um, but eventually, if you know, eventually you would expect that pivot to happen, but. Again, for right now, again, right now, beta and duration, we're sitting very, very neutral on, on both of those with offsets amongst the asset classes. Um, but, but Pierre, specifically to your point, I mean, this is a question that I get, I don't know, I've done hundreds of presentations this year, and I think I've, I have something like 45 road trips. But that question of GIC versus balance fund, which I think you sort of alluded to, this, yeah. this is a question that, Honestly, I've just started answering first before the Q and A even begins, because it, outside of the Canadian dollar, it has become you know what I call my greatest hit. Um, uh, so and <laughs> so, um, uh, and and ultimately, I think the question really is about time horizon, right? So it's a it's a time horizon question. We haven't had GIC rates um, like we've had now in decades, right? And you can understand for the downside protected investor, not wanting, um, you know, really would, you know, preferring the certainty of this much upside versus the downside of that much. Uh, I'm, you can understand that parking spot of GICs. Um, it, it, it's very oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think that's the the point is that you know, like investors have have more options than ever right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they have the option of getting the the simplest yield. On on short term or ultra short term investments, uh, you, you know, somewhere between three and a half and five percent, um, and and then they have similar choices going out five, ten, twenty, mm -hmm. uh, you know, years out on the curve, uh, similar yields, yeah. but obviously the dynamics change as you get into the duration, into longer duration assets. Um, I'm curious to know, and then I have just a couple of final questions. I'm curious to know what your view is right now at this point. Is it too soon or is the time right for long-term treasuries? Because there's been a lot of barbelling going on, like where there's a lot of money going into, I know these are just like, you know, these are things that are probably happening within your strategy, you know, questions that you're that you're trying to answer within your own strategy. But investors seem to be, doing a, a you know this barbell where where they've got lots of money flowing into short term for for obvious reasons but then there's also been a a you know a ton of money flowing into something like TLT 
right. right? Which has been, you know, gangbusters this year, even though it has up until a couple of weeks ago, you know, three, four weeks ago, uh, yields peaked and, and the value, the value of, you know, long-term treasuries bottomed a near, you know, a near-term bottom, but, but investors don't seem to be relenting on, on that bet. So I'm just wondering where are you where are you in your strategy on long-term yields as far as you know exploiting not only the yield but uh, the outlook that that rates will fall. I'm guessing you're not there yet. No, somewhat. we're not. Yeah, no. so we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, uh, to, I mean to to make to make a a long answer yeah. short. <laughs> yeah, we're not there yet. <laughs> no. I mean, um, yeah, we're we're not there yet. We're we're probably more there than we were a year ago, uh, but we're not there yet. And that's because anytime I'm asked a question about you know, fixed income, uh, where are we on the curve? I always think in terms, I, I, I think I break every one of those questions down into what is a likely path of inflation, right? That's the ultimate question because right. that informs the, the Fed decision and then informs the entire curve. We, we have not, we have just, I, again, I, I pay very close attention to the inflation data. Every month, for example, under the PCE deflator, we get in the US, we get 356 lines of data. I still run the models I used to run as a researcher. There is not convincing evidence that we have seen enough slowing in order for the Fed to really change course materially. Now, um, there has been progress. I don't want to. I don't want to say there hasn't been progress. There, there has been progress, but there has not been enough progress for us to really change that view of underweight investment grade and overweight those credit and, sp and spread sectors with a slice of inflation protection built in as well. So that's yeah. that's kind of where we are, and and where I envision us to be for some time. That's a, that's an important question. I, I I think you know investors do want to know whether or not they should place their bets on long term treasuries or not. Um, and the answer to that is, in your opinion, is too soon, way too, too soon. soon. Yeah, and and I would um, again I would say yeah. these are tactical portfolios, right? So yeah. we're working with our researchers, we're speaking to the underlying bond managers as well that we work with in. Merrimack, New Hampshire. Um, that's all part of the process, and and you know eventually this this view, if re based on research, will change, um, and 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 we will evolve these portfolios, right? So right now we're sitting fairly neutral, sitting on that sixty and forty. If I rewind a year and a half, it was more, it was almost a seventy thirty, right? So in the recovery, right. so we can be quite tactical in these spots. So two two. Last questions, two final questions. First of all, what's the dumbest thing you've heard recently <laughs> or been hearing recently? <laughs> um, so I, I, I really think um, this is a tricky one. That's a great question. So I, I really think there is, uh, there, there is a view that's pervasive in Canada that housing activity can never fall, that the bank will cut rates so that my debt load will not be as painful as it is today, right. um, and that things will be okay. Now, again, like I like a warm pair of fuzzy slippers as much as the next person, but there are times when, you know, that just isn't the right approach. I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor, but that's the one I came up with. Um, so it's a good one. I, I yeah, like it. So, you know, <laughs> again, like I think people underestimate the conviction that central banks have 
in achieving their inflation mandate. They have learned the lessons from the 80s, right, of cutting too soon with the re that resurgence we saw in U.S. inflation. They're laser focused on this inflation mandate. Um, it's an awful job, I'm sure, right now to be to be the governor of a central bank. Um, but you know, and and if there is pain, it, that will be viewed in 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 some respects, provided it's not widespread and 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 too significant as progress, right? And so, again, I, I I've spoken to thousands of advisors, um, and and sometimes. What bubbles up is the housing market's going to be fine. Those eight rental condos that I bought in Vaughn are going to, they're negative yielding now, but eventually they'll be yeah. back to, to a better investment. And, and again, like, I just don't know how, I don't know how Canada in particular doesn't struggle in the face of these exceptionally um, elevated rates versus history versus recent history on top of, um, on top of uh, uh, you know excessive amounts of debt, um, so I'm not sure if that's the the dumbest thing I've I've heard I've heard recently. I mean, another way for me to think about that question, Pierre, I've been at Fidelity now ten years, and you know I started at the Central Bank over 21 years ago, 22 years ago. My two takeaways are: save more than you think you should, and always be diversified. Right. So I joke that the ABCs yeah. are always be diversified, but. Um, that's not quite ABC. <laughs> so, um, but those are those are my biggest takeaways, and and maybe some people don't believe that. No, that's a good. I, I uh, thank you, thank you for sharing that. My last question is: What's the smartest thing you've heard or come across lately? Uh, I think you know. Again, one of the um, one of the best things about my job is is working around exceptionally smart and talented people, both in Canada. Uh, overseas and in the U.S., um, and you know the research that the research teams that underpin what we do and that inform the positions that we're we're taking in our funds are staffed by exceptionally talented and bright people that are helping us think not just about um, you know not the newspaper level AI robotics stuff, but really company by company implementation thinking about what it may mean for the future of our industry and the future of various industries. What are the asset classes that are there that are going to benefit? Which are the ones that are going to hurt? Similarly, like geopolitics, which uh, we didn't touch on today. I mean, that comes up a lot as well. Yeah. And it's one thing to talk about or investigate or think about geopolitics from the newspaper style level, but it's another thing to, to work with, you know, a researcher on that asset allocation research team who spent a career at the CIA and is now helping us think, <laughs> think about uh, geopolitical risks and what it means in the context of the investable universe, right? So right. Um, again, I, I, I'm a recovering research nerd. I'll always be a research nerd. There's no substitute for high quality research in terms of our investment process. Amazing. Ilan, thank you so much for your incredibly valuable time. It's been, it's been a, uh, a huge pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Uh, thanks, Pierre. I've really enjoyed this discussion as well. Mm -hmm.